Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from this week's episode on why the Nash market will develop differently than the statin market did. In this conversation, I suggest several differences between the environment in which statins became a dominant powerhouse in the pharmaceutical markets of the 1990s and early 2000s and the situation that exists today. After that, our panelists, Stephen Harrison, Louise Campbell, Jorn Schottenberg, and Michelle Long, each identify one difference they consider meaningful. The history of the statin market has figured prominently in drug pricing and reimbursement discussions for years. So it is important to understand that these are vastly different situations. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. When statins became available in the U.S. for the first time, that began a rush to a $25 billion a year drug market that paid off in somewhere between 10 and 20 years. Well, it didn't even pay off, but you saw benefit in a period between 10 and 20 years. And that cost the healthcare system a bunch of money. At that point in time, payers didn't have a lot of power to control, but they did now. And one of the concerns you hear from everybody now is what will payers do when drugs come to market? So I think it is helpful to begin a conversation on why what we see now with Nash and Nash drugs is so different than what we saw back in the mid-80s with statins. What I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out seven or eight points of difference that I can see, and then, or seven or eight points about statins that I think are different, and then I'm going to ask the group each to take one and comment, and we'll go back and forth for a while and see what we land. All right, here's my list. First of all, the major event in bringing cholesterol forward, which happened about the time that Merck launched Lovastatin, which was the first statin, was a very large study called LRC-CPPT, less major study I've ever seen that didn't have an acronym for a name, $150 million from the FDA. And their conclusion was that every 1% drop in total cholesterol led to a 2% drop in coronary artery disease and coronary events. And by the way, at that point in time, they said that was true for everybody with cholesterol over 200 milligrams per deciliter. So that's a third of the US population or more. Everybody should be treated because everybody, you can decrease their risk. And what that did was it led to a really, over time, a widespread and extremely broad demand for these agents. In addition, everything you needed to know to be able to evaluate somebody's cholesterol was already on a standard heme panel. You got total cholesterol, you got HDL, you got LDL, you got triglycerides. The ratios you had to build weren't very complicated. So everything was there. The levels were too high because they were based on 95th percentile of the population. But one of the first things that public health did was lobby to drop the levels. So pretty soon, every time somebody looked at a test, they could see that their cholesterol level was elevated to the point of being dangerous. That was, like a, that was roughly a third of the population. There have been 25 years of debate about the meaning of cholesterol, which was put to bed by the LRC study, which was the definitive study. And there were products going into market just waiting for results that they could sell. When the study came out, the two pivotal related specialties, cardiologists and endocrinologists, both jumped on it with both feet and started using that to promote and discuss patients a lot more aggressively. And Big Pharma was involved in the early stage drugs. The first statin to come to market came from Merck. The second one came from Bristol-Myers Squibb. The third one came from Merck and AstraZeneca. And although it wasn't, the fourth was from Novartis and the sixth, which wound up really changing all the rules, came from Pfizer. So you had extensive big pharma investment, minimal insurer payer to stop the drug from coming, and not a lot of standards or understanding of disease that you could use to stratify patients and say, treat these folks first and those folks second. As a result, statins are widely adopted. As soon as anybody has anything that looks like an outcome study, it jumps from there. And the insurers, I think, still believe that the economics never worked in their favor. So now we have insurers who've got power, and one of the tasks is to help educate them and the various physician specialties and everybody else on the idea that there is stratified risk associated with NAFL and NASH. Some patients are worth treating more than others. We've got cost-effectiveness studies. Miles and talked about one of them here a couple months ago, where we've demonstrated that today, screening every diabetic patient for NASH is cost-effective, even in the absence of NASH drug. That's what statins were. I think there's several points of difference. And I would just like to ask each of you, brave one going first, 
pick one element of what I just described where you want to talk about how NASH is different and why you think treatment should be given greater priority even in the uh, in advance of drugs and certainly as soon as drugs start to come to market. You know, Stephen, I'm going to give it a first thought and then see what uh, Steve and Michelle and Louise are going to have to say follow up. Obviously, I wasn't around the 80s to follow all that discussion for too close, but I think the major difference is that we have dealt with the biomarkers that are closely linked to the pathophysiology of the disease, indicating disease progression, potentially rapid progression, to a much deeper extent. And the, the understanding of which biomarkers link to which outcome that has been defined as provable and, and relevant to the patient is just much more evolved from my perspective and understanding. And looking at the bigger field, I think we'll have patients we're worried about uh, as hepatologists and want to treat them to prevent cirrhosis or even reverse cirrhosis potentially in the future. And these patients might need aggressive treatment. And then there's the subset, which is probably the majority of patients that has some steatohepatitis that's progressing or stable or slowly progressing, and it contributes to worsening of the metabolic control. And as a hepatologist, I might highlight that there's a drug that's anti-steatohepatitis, working against hepatosteatitis. You know, this patient is not going to reach a liver endpoint soon, but by adding this drug, you will get a better glycemic control. And so I think in, in one smaller subset, we're going to be the main person to be thinking about which drug to prevent cirrhosis or progression or reverse. And then on the other hand, we're just going to be partner of the cardiologist or diapetologist. And I think all of this is going to be based on well-defined biomarkers. Yeah, Yorna, I think uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're a lot further along than where the lipid field was at the time of the first drug crossing the finish line and getting approved. But also remember, not only do we have data <coughs> linking fibrosis progression to outcomes, we now have data linking fibrosis regression to improved outcomes. We also know from bariatric surgery data and from elafibrinor data and other data sets that improvement in the NAFLD activity score is linked to improvement in fibrosis. And so there is a draw the lines, connect the dots between NASH resolution and improvement in outcomes. But I think it's pretty clear. The, the additional part of this is we have drugs being studied that have pleiotrophic effects beyond histopathology. These medications can improve glycemic control, which is also linked to an outcome. We have drugs that can improve atherogenic lipids, again, linked to an outcome. Drugs that can induce weight loss linked to an outcome. So obviously we think the ideal NASH drug for the majority of patients is likely going to be combination therapy that will allow us to hit on all of those facets collectively. However, our drugs that are in late phase development now are generally speaking targeting multiple different avenues of disease and multiple comorbidities. So my suspicion is, or my hope is that, that these drugs will be maybe not necessarily even additive, but maybe will replace the need for some of these concomitant medications. So again, I don't look at NASH drug development as something that is strictly focused on the liver disease. And oh, by the way, you need to have a statin and you need to manage their diabetes and you need to get after weight reduction. If we're just throwing out the crystal ball and thinking about the future here, I, I would love to have a NASH drug that does all the others as well, that manages the patient completely. And I think as our understanding of the pathophysiology of the disease evolves, we'll be able to do that better and better and better. But just circling back to the beginning and what stimulated this conversation, 
conversation. We're in a completely different place than where statins were when they first were crossing through this uh, frontier of, of approval. But I'd love to hear Michelle and Louise's thoughts as well. I agree, certainly. One thing that I am concerned about, though, is that the general lack of knowledge or lack of sophisticated knowledge in medicine by even within gastroenterology or a disease that affects patients in our subspecialty, the people do not understand how to risk stratify patients within endocrinology, within primary care, across certainly within cardiology, a real lack of understanding. And so when a drug becomes available, my concern is that let's say, oh, now we have a drug for fatty liver. So when I got that uh, ultrasound, now I have, uh, and it said, you know, oh, you have some hepatic steatosis. Now I have a drug I can put you on. And there's going to be people that are going to be seeking these new medications when, when in fact they really need to be saving them or using them carefully and in for the patients that are most at need and most at risk for disease progression. So I do think that's, that's a major problem. Also, similarly, we do have biomarkers. And I think it's great that we do have good evidence now to show that fibrosis as sort of an intermediate endpoint is important and improvements in fibrosis do link to hard endpoints. But quantifying fibrosis and actually diagnosing fibrosis is challenging. And it's not easy like drawing a lipid panel is and saying your total cholesterol is over 200. It's difficult to interpret these non-invasive tests. You have to use sometimes multiple tests. The cutoff, may, there may be different considerations depending on the age of the patient, depending on what comorbidities are there. And you may not have access to sophisticated imaging as a, as a primary care doctor or outside of a specialized center. So while these tools are available, and I think that there are, in a lot of ways, I completely agree that we're in a very different place. I am concerned that there needs to be more education about how to use these tools, and they need to be made more readily available and simplified. Please, why don't you go ahead? I agree with everything that's been said, and I particularly agree with Michelle in that the context of how they're going to be used. For our NASH population, we're aiming at advanced fibrosis three and four because of the mortality risk. Whereas a lipid panel we can read, it's it's not difficult to put somebody on a statin and measure the outcomes of that quite quickly, but we're still a long way from defining what where we want to treat patients. Do we want to prevent disease at an early stage? And if that was the case, then the treatment of all patients with statins, we would have potentially, I would have thought, seen a regression in the amount of NASH that we're getting and fatty liver disease because we know that the they can help, but we don't. It hasn't stopped that. And I, I and I think there is that sort of double-edged sword that if you give a pill to sort a problem, people don't change their lifestyle. It's easy. It's solved with a pill. And I think we've discussed that on the podcast before, that if we get a pill for NASH, just, will that drive further fatty liver disease and ill health, or will it solve more problems? We're in a way better place. We know an awful lot more. We, we've got genetics. We've got microbiome. We've got, we know way more, but we still don't know the particular phenotypes that are affected best. And I do think Michelle's right. Will a GP said we know the low-hanging fruit? They've got diabetes, high cholesterol, hypertension. Let's just stick them on these drugs without doing thorough investigations and targeting lifestyle, everything that can be more beneficial. So yeah, but with caution, I think we have to tread into the future with these. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. 
If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back on next Wednesday, July 21st, when Donna Cryer and friends take over the podcast to discuss clinical trial recruitment from the patient's point of view. It's a fascinating topic and a perspective we've not yet shared on this podcast. I loved it. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.